Music from this episode is available on the Twin Peaks Evangelion Spotify playlist. Check the show notes for a link. Through the darkness of futures past, the magician longs to see. One chance out between two worlds. Shinji getting the fucking robot. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome everybody. This is Twin Peaks Evangelion, another bonus episode for your asses. Um, I'm Craig and I'm here with my buddy Vincent. Vincent, how are you my dude? I'm ready to step into the Black Lodge. Awesome. Um, So generally on the show what we do is uh we watch and talk about either twin peaks and or evangelion today we're not going to be talking about evangelion much i don't think so apologies for all the weebs out there that are tuning into this Vinny, i want to ask you though apart from your premium subscription to pornhub uh what have you been watching lately i have been watching season one of season two of original twin peaks cool very cool and if this is your first episode with us um vinny's whole shtick is that uh he went through watching the entirety of uh twin peaks the return before getting to this point uh without having watched any of season one and season two so now we're at a place where um basically vinny you've seen most of the entirety of the twin peaks canon i'm 90 percent there i'm 90 percent there 90% 90% there. There is one big piece of the, the puzzle missing, which we'll which we'll get to. But yeah, I thought it would be cool to just do this little bonus episode to talk about. We're not going to sort of recap every episode of, um, of the original Twin Peaks or anything like that. Um, that would take about a week. Rather, this would be more of an informal episode. Um, so um, just overall, Vinny, watching these original two seasons, which are, you know, 30 years old at this point... What, what did you kind of think overall, just in a, in a sentence or two? I think that season one is one of the best opening seasons to any drama out there. And then the network saw that and did the stupidest thing ever. We get, hey, let's not do another eight. Let's do 22. And then that is what immediately set it's, it up to fail. Because how the mm-hmm. heck can you see an eight episode perfect season one and say, let's almost triple that into season two? Yeah, it was that that's one of the big disparities between the two seasons is this first season is this kind of perfectly formed short kind of thing. Yeah, the second season just seems so bloated by comparison. Was there anything that sort of stuck out to you about I guess the production of of these shows? Like what what were your kind of thoughts around that? Uh my thought was like well first I I did a little research to see what channel this was on. This was on ABC. Which is like, I mm. could have never guessed that this was on ABC. I would have figured this would have been on, like, NBC. Because ABC, I always think of, like, sitcoms. I never think of, like, dramas or serious stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's already a red flag on why there was such a mismanagement of the show via the network. As far as mm-hmm. the production-wise, it it was so good at just setting the mood, setting the tension. Especially mm-hmm. for, like, the time. Like, of course, like, the special effects are all dated. I can see the seams of the green skin, stuff like that. But I still sure. was into the mood whenever they were trying to establish it. Various angles or movement of the camera between attenu- tensions between two characters and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I could feel I could feel the, the quality that was behind the lens mm. through how much I was seeing on the lens. Right. It's interesting your point that you made about ABC. Um, at the time um, when ABC was kind of looking to pick this up, 
think they were like the one of the lowest rated um, channels in America at the time. They, you know, they were just not getting the ratings that other networks were. And they, this was a huge risk for them. This was a huge gamble. You know, as, as we've come to know, this was a, a massively influential show. And a lot of that was because it was so different and so innovative. Relatively big budget, I think, and, you know, compared to what they were working with. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a big risk. But ultimately, it was a, well, the first season, at least, was a huge payoff for them. Um, massive rating splits. It was, a, it was a phenomenon when it came out. I want to talk, Vinny, about the, about the characters of the original show. Because, obviously, not everybody that was in the original show made it um, into the return. And you know, vice versa, there were a lot of characters in the return that weren't in the original series. My first question for you, Vinny, is what's, um, were there any characters in the original series that you wish that you'd seen in the return? Any characters that you, you, know, you, you wanted to sort of see what had happened 25 years later? My favorite character that wasn't in the return was Pete. I love Pete. He's such a good man. He just wants to fish. And all these people are trying to get him on the bullshit. Like, just let me fish. And then yeah. when the season two finale happened, I'm like, God dang it, he's probably dead. <laughs> yeah. He was briefly in The Return. He was in, yeah. in a flashback form. Yep. Yeah, he is He is a great character. And the old, um, the old fish in the percolator scene is a, <laughs> is a classic. But also just yeah. his, his line in the, in the first episode, she's dead, wrapped in plastic. Like I can, yeah. like, that's just such a strong statement, especially with his accent and his performance. Like, God, I can see how that first episode was already got the hook and everyone's, mm. everyone viewing it. Like, my God, he's so good. But also in the flashback scene from the return, I can appreciate it more because throughout the entire first two seasons, he's trying to fish with someone, whether that be with Josie or Audrey. And then you get to see him go enjoy his fishing day without discovering Laura Palmer's yeah. body. He just walks up to yeah. the pier and just lets it out. I'm like... Good for you, Pete. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if we if we sort of think about that a little bit, I, I guess in a way, it's Pete that kind of kickstarts the whole narrative. Yeah, like, you know, he's the one that finds her body. He's he's kind of the the starting point for the whole the whole saga, really, isn't he? Yeah. So yeah, it would have it would have been difficult to have him come back in the return, um, given that he died in around nineteen ninety seven. No. Yeah, this was the actor Jack Nance who worked with Lynch on a lot of his films. He was the he was the main protagonist in Eraserhead. Ooh, interesting film. But yeah, he um, but he was in most of Lynch's productions up until Lost Highway was his last one, which came out in '97. I think he might have died in '96. Well, do you know if the character Pete was supposed to die in that season two finale? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there was a. I don't think there was a decision made about whether he would have died in that in that um, situation or not. Given what you know about characters and how they act in the return, was there anything that was kind of really radically different from the in the original series? Like, were there any characters or situations where you thought, "God, I would not have picked that this character would be like that," based on what we saw in the return? Was there any anything along those lines? Uh, I mean, more and so of like the the soft recasting of like Sheriff Truman, where like in the return, Truman, the brother of this Truman, was very just like by the books and all that. Whereas Harry, he has a relationship with Josie. Uh, he has he has an open well an open secret relationship with someone who is mm. involved in all the mystery. Whereas the Truman we have in the return is just there to be an authority figure. So I thought that was very yeah, interesting right. to have that element in the return. I mean, in the original series. 
How, how do you think the return would have been different if we did have Harry Truman in there? It would have been so different because, like, he saw, like, Cooper going into the Black Lodge. He saw the curtains and he saw him disappear and he waited all night and day for him. Mm. So he knows of the existence, whereas New Truman, I, I doubt he even, I mean, maybe he's been told about it or stuff like that, but he hasn't seen the other weirdly stuff mm. until it happens in his office. Yeah, I feel like Frank Truman is more kind of, like, has an open mind about this kind of stuff and is willing to kind of hear and think about it. But um, yeah, you're right. Harry definitely had that sort of more direct. Yeah. He sort of saw things with his own eyes kind of. I was listening to a podcast earlier, um, the Twin Peaks log cast, which is, which is very good. The guys on there, they sort of um, speculated that in one of their episodes that um, if Truman were to show up in the return, then potentially wouldn't be in law enforcement. You know, he Mm. might, you know, and, and that, that kind of got me thinking, you know, perhaps after all the stuff that he's experienced with Josie and with, you know, seeing his good friend absorbed into an extra dimensional space or whatever the hell was going on and all the stuff that sort of presumably followed that, you know, there's a good argument that he might not stay on the force. Yeah, it could have been like a shell of a man that only like original yeah. recipe Coop could have saved. Like it could have been another like fuck yeah mm. for the finale. Like you just see like the shell of a man throughout the return. And then when Cooper like picks him up on the way to the sheriff's station and then okay, then that's when the real like duo are back. It could have been something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that would have been that would have been really interesting and um you know, we know that after Josie's death, started drinking heavily and all that kind of stuff. I wonder if you know we might have a bit more of a maybe a Sarah Palmer situation on our hand in the return with um, with that character. And then also an- another character was Bobby. He was a mm. punk kid who just liked getting into trouble and messing around versus like mm-hmm. the strict lawman who who got shit done. Who was a- who was action man. He was ready to take out a sniper outside the diner. But no, yeah. he was just this punk kid who just wanted to sleep with multiple women and just do whatever he wanted. Like, what was your, what was kind of your response to that? You know, seeing him in those early episodes. It was first a shock until I saw his relationship with his father, Major Briggs, and it was like, oh, okay, having that cold, desensitized father figure who was just so mm. just non-sharing of emotions. Like, oh, okay, I can see why why you act like this this is this is your upbringing sure. i can see why you want to rebel right. you have the ultimate figure of authority with a man who's all about his job like yeah now i get it and a job that he can't talk about either like he can't um you know he has to keep everything really closely guarded for national security reasons i guess but then they also share this this beautiful moment in in is it the second season where yeah. they where he's talking yeah it's, it's an iconic moment where he's talking about his his vision and you know how he would see Bobby grow and develop and, um, you know, and then embrace or whatever it was. Beautiful, touching moment. And I wonder if that was kind of the moment that sort of set Bobby on his, on his path. Yes, but also, like, the threat of, like, almost dying from all his antics. Probably, I should probably get on the good side of this. Yeah. It was after that that he sort of tried to do the straight and narrow thing and tried to, you know, work with, you know, work for Ben Horn. Yeah. Yeah, had all that kind of all that kind of plot and everything. We'll we'll address the Audrey elephant, the the Audrifant in the room soon. Apart from Audrey, who do you think is the worst character in the original season? <laughs> oh shit, uh, Ben. <laughs> ben, yeah, yeah. In terms of in in terms of the worst being you know the most 
despicable or yes. the most or, or the one that you didn't like the most i mean i mean did you like did you like being as a character i mean i liked him enough in the return like sure. mainly because of jerry which is like right oh <laughs> wait craig i don't know what happened to jerry what the hell happened between <laughs> two and what, what is what <laughs> <laughs> well clearly he um well what, what do we know about him in season two he's a he passed the bar so he is a lawyer which has been who has been disbarred in a number of states in a number of states um his legal advice to Ben is that he needs to get a better lawyer yeah, i think was so the, funny was as your brother and your lawyer you need a better lawyer <laughs> yeah in the first and second season he seems like a um a lot more of like a just a schemey kind of wheeler dealer type character that you know schmoozes people and sets up these shady deals and sort of bullshits people he's a, a big bullshit artist my head canon is that he just know, maybe he got involved with something that he was kind of over his head and you know sort of thought, oh no i gotta i gotta find something else and you know channeled his efforts into legal marijuana yeah. growth and distribution so uh, i think that's doing pretty well for him like i think there's a line in the first episode of the return where he's sort of saying that you know he makes more money from that than the hotel makes or something like that which is which is wild so yeah i, I figure something bad maybe he had a run with a mob or something like that something bad happened to him in between and he sort of realized that he had to sort of embraces hippie roots a bit more and yeah. uh something else. i did realize the only time i really liked ben was when he was being a brother with jerry like those little bonding moments between them i liked mm. because i can just see the abuse he was throwing at him in the return like oh jerry i always got to clean up yourself what he's naked mm. near the border uh, i'll go get him yeah, yeah stuff like that but i like the building of like the brotherhood between them how they had each other's back and stuff like that where mm. Even though Ben is just a scum, he's running brothels, doing running drugs, and then rewriting history so the South won the Civil War. What? <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Yep. Well, staying with the Horn family, then let's let's address it. What did you think of Audrey in the original series? Watching the original series. I feel justified in thinking she's an asshole, but also I understand her better with like, this is a fucked up family. Of course, she's just as screwed mm. up as they are. So I understand her better, but I still feel justified. Right. Do you think your impression of her as a character would have changed if you had seen the original series first? Maybe, but also just from the first second of her poking a hole through someone's coffee cup, I'm like, oh, fuck you. Just fuck you. Yeah. Don't do that shit. Yeah, I can... I can definitely see that. She's definitely got a, a sense of privilege and entitlement that um, you know, sort of doesn't sit well. Like, I wanted to see her more caring about her brother, but I never got mm. to that. I just, you only see him really once or twice, and then it's just never addressed yeah, again. Right. Like, if there was more of that, then I could have loved her more, but it, he is such an afterthought in the original series, and just in a big, violent moment in The Return, it's like you didn't really do anything with him or his connection with Audrey. So it just feels like this mm. thing where there are things I want to like about you, but you never followed through with it. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Uh, it feels like he was kind of established as a character as somebody, as an example of Laura's good side. You know, Laura was looking after him or caring for him in some way. And that potentially tied her in with Ben and all of that nefarious business, um, potentially. But yeah, it seems like he exists as a character to showcase that Laura's good side, so that the contrast with her with her dark side is more is more potent, I guess. Yeah, interesting. 
Um, but I think you're right, though. I think that, um, you know, at the time, Audrey was kind of seen as this, you know, foxy little vixen character who... Especially with the jazz music playing in every scene she's in. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in those early episodes where she's, you know, where she goes to school and she takes off her sensible shoes and puts on the red heels or whatever, you know, that's she's very much established as kind of this, this sort of vixen who kind of gets what she wants and... You know, she has that line, you know, I'm, I'm Audrey Horn and I get what I want. I feel like about midway through the season, they kind of weren't sure what to do with her. You know, after all the One-Eyed Jack stuff and, you know, she gets rescued and all that kind of thing. Got sidelined for a lot of it. She meets Billy Zane, falls in love, and then that amounts to him just leaving and her chaining herself to a bank. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird kind of um, way to end that. In the earlier episodes, um, there was, I guess, a more visible or a more palpable kind of chemistry or tension between her and Cooper. What do you think about the idea of Cooper and Audrey getting together? Uh, <laughs> could it be the one way I could hate her more? Probably. But it, I liked it because I knew he wasn't going to fall for it. And I think she needed that slap in the face of, no, you can't always get what you want. And then him firmly be, being like... Look, I'll be your friend, but guess what? I'm just as fucked up as you are. Probably more. So we probably mm. need a friend rather than someone you can seduce. And I really liked that being the end of it. Cool. Yeah, a lot of this is kind of speculative. But um, production-wise, I think that was the intention, was to have them be become an item. And there's there's conflicting reports about all of this kind of stuff. But um, you know, at the time of filming, Kyle McLaughlin was actually dating Lara Flynn Boyle, um, Donna's... Mm actress and and basically the the idea that cooper and audrey would get together was kind of quashed i think by kyle or some of you know some of the cast and there's speculation as to what was motivating that um i think the official line was that you know he's an upstanding um fbi agent he's you know and this is an 18 year old schoolgirl. um so there was that but there's some indication that it could have been motivated by um other cast members who were involved with other actors and uh, yeah specifically Lara Flynn Boyle <laughs> I think it was probably I think you're right I think it was probably the right call for them not to get involved I think that would have been weird um you know especially watching it 30 years later I think that would have been that would have been weird yeah I feel like Audrey was a missed opportunity I, th I feel like she could have done a lot more and had a lot more agency in that sort of second season um, I mean yeah she gets the short stick in season two and the return it's like what mm. i feel bad for the actress like she, what is she i think she acts well don't get me wrong i think she plays the character supremely well but it's just that the shortcoming of the writing is just there's this character that is such chaotic energy but you don't use that mm. energy properly mm, absolutely let's talk about some of the some of the iconic scenes from the um from the series and i just want to kind of get your thoughts on um on sort of what was going through your head when we were you know when when these were playing out and um sort of what you thought about them um i've only picked a few and i should probably preface here this will be spoilers for the entirety of of twin peaks up to but excluding fire walk with me which Vinny has not seen but early on in the season we had the the first appearance of the red room in cooper's dream what did you notice about that scene or what was your impression of that scene my impression was that this was a very unique way of introducing it just in dreams and having this just 
it had an elegant shot to it, but also the uh, uh, the right amount of weird to make you feel uneasy about it. And like you didn't think, mm-hmm. oh, Cooper's just sitting in a regular lounge with people. Like, no, this is this is a different type of place. This is this mm-hmm. s- small man is dancing around, and just the lighting of it is weird, and he looks so disturbed. And I thought it was a great way to introduce the concept of this other place that Cooper goes to. Mm. How do you think the red room kind of compares in its early appearance based on sort of what we see later on in the return? It's very slow in introducing the more supernatural. The like mm. the most we get in the original series is like strobe and stuff like that, mm. where in the return it's, you know, appearing bodies, bleeding out, it's Laura screaming her head off being abducted by aliens, it's the electric yeah, brain thing, it's all it's all full force in the return, where in the original yeah. series it's the weird. Mm. It, it looks kind of murky mm. and hazy, like there's this like they they really amplified like the red light in that first um iteration of it. And like the the I don't know if they use a different flooring or whatever, but like the, the carpet looks a lot darker. It's just got this real murky thing. I think it ties in well with it being a dream and kind of, you know, hazy kind of recollection and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it just, I don't know, it looked a lot cleaner and a lot more, a lot brighter, I guess, in, even in like um, its later appearances in the original series yeah. and definitely in The Return. Yeah, it looked a lot, a lot sort of cleaner and, um, and clearer, I guess. Hmm. Now, you just mentioned the electric brain tree. And um, you said, you told me off pod that you sort of had a theory about that. What, what have you come up with? So, I was I was looking back on my notes, especially like the notes towards the, for the second season finale. Then I saw how the small man in the, in the red suit looked Cooper dead in the face and said, the next time you see me, it won't be me. I'm like, was he the one who turned into the electric brain tree? Him blatantly saying after 25 years, I'll be something else, but it'll still be me. Benny? So the question that you're asking here is absolutely revealed in Firewalk With Me. Mm-hmm. I said that I wouldn't spoil anything from Firewalk With Me, but this is just too good not to spoil. So I'm going to spoil a small part of it. Okay. In Firewalk With Me, uh, there's a scene in the Red Room. The small man, the man from another place is his character's name. Okay. He specifically says, I am the arm. So he has that line, I am the arm. <laughs> and it's interesting because when he says that, he is appearing with Mike, the one-armed man in the red room. Yeah. The implication being that he is somehow a physical manifestation okay. of Mike's disembodied arm yep <laughs> the, the, wait the idea that mike is in the return is just chilling in the red room with what used to be his arm is now an electric brain tree and mike's just whatever it's another day in this place <laughs> i'm gonna preface this with a with a content warning because there's some behind the scenes stuff that uh, contributed to that oh, okay. um it's gets a little bit gets a little bit wild so I'm just gonna I'm gonna choose my words carefully here. Michael Anderson, who was the the actor who played the small the man from another place, mm-hmm. um, he was in negotiations to appear in the return to reprise his role. 
he didn't appear in the return, as we know. Mm. And the official line is that it was it was due to um, nego- yeah pay negotiations and you know, contractual arrangements and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Around the same time that the return was in development, though, um, the actor went on a a bit of a rant on social media and made some pretty heinous accusations against um against david lynch and other people that were involved in in twin peaks Mm -hmm. he accused lynch of being a murderer and who had um, sexually assaulted his his own daughter had arranged for his friend jack nance pete martell to be murdered to because he knew and was covering it up all kinds of like um intense accusations that he he made on on social media yeah so that happened around the same time (laughs) um and he did not reprise his role in the return it should also be noted that um michael anderson was also around around the same era was also making a bunch of um anti-semitic remarks online um he was saying a bunch of um of derogatory things against um, various ethnic groups and other minorities. So, um, yeah, there's, there was clearly some stuff going on there. And um, as a result, his character was evolved into a tree with a brain on it. <laughs> yeah. Great call. Great call. But it's just it's just very, very funny to hear, to watch Firewalk With Me and hear I Am The Arm and then... <laughs> have the first episode of the return where Mike points out the evolution of the arm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know how Mike gets in the red room now. It's not really, we don't get to point A to point B with him getting in there. Really? Uh, I mean, we can, we we can talk about that a little bit, um, a little bit later on, but I want to ask you about a, a few other about your reactions to a few other kind of key scenes first. Right. So there's a scene. Um, there's a scene in the return. It's a roadhouse performance by um, by James, uh, where he sings a song, "Just You and I." Mm-hmm. Just you and I. Um, which was originally part of this <laughs> this first this first couple of seasons. Do you like this song, Vinny? <laughs> Mm, no. <laughs> oh, it kept man. coming this... up. I'm like, God dang it! What the fuck, <laughs> Eric? Like, I'm okay it's... with the theme song playing over and over again because it's a good. But God, this song every time I heard the first opening chords, I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it sort of became the theme for any sort of tension between James and Donna and Maddie. I think in that in that second season. Yeah, it was it was funny. I mean, it's it's a funny scene, I think, yeah. um, in the original show. And when it came up again in the return, I I was just gobsmacked. Like I was, it was so <laughs> funny that of everything from the original show that they would have brought back, they brought back that bullshit. So funny. But also the idea. Here's a song that I wrote in high school, and I'm still playing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, you know, maybe he's had a semi-successful kind of, you know, maybe he did launch it in those 25 years. Maybe it was a one-hit wonder in, in 1997 or something. You right. know, who knows? You know, and he's still sort of touring on the back of that. 
and maybe, and I don't know, maybe he's opening for Eddie Vedder at, uh, <laughs> at the Roadhouse. <laughs> Just the the total ship and <laughs> Jeremy spoken class today. Nice little throwback there. I do like that scene though in the original show because it does end with Maddie having that vision of Bob, mm-hmm. where Bob is crawling over the couch cushions in that one sustained shot. That is a horrifying <laughs> so scary he is so sc- he's scarier than that slender man thing in the return honestly mm. and we'll, we'll talk about bob a little bit later but um yeah he is those appearances are creepy like um especially that one where he's crawling over the thing and you think yeah. it's gonna cut away oh. and it just doesn't cut away and, yeah dude let's talk about and again <laughs> another spoiler warning Let's talk about the scene where um, Maddie is murdered. Oh, yeah. This is a David Lynch-directed episode, and probably one of the most horrific things that's ever been shown on network TV, especially in 1991. (laughs) Yeah. What was your your reaction to that scene? It was just like... uh, Because I already saw, like, the downturn of Leland. I'm like, okay, I remember my original theories that he killed Laura with that one little flashback that's apparently in Firewalk with me of him seeing Laura Mm. escape... I mean, sneak out with James and all that. And him, like, creepily looking through the curtains, like, ooh, and stuff like that. And then just seeing his downturn of insanity, like, it's one thing where, like, it's a grieving father mourning, like, a child, but then just... The more he downturns, the more I'm like, he did it somehow with the white hair or just his obsession mm. over music and stuff like that and the way he looked at Maddie. And then once he mm. like grabs her and just shoves her against the frame, it's like, oh, okay, this man's killed before. And he's killed a woman who looked just like Maddie. Horrific stuff. Yeah, really, really nasty. Behind the scenes for that, um, there was a there was some interesting stuff because Laura's killer was a closely guarded secret. Nobody except, I think, David Lynch and Mark Frost, I think they were the only people who knew who it was going to be for a long time. And their original intention was that they wouldn't ever kind of reveal who it was um, if they had their way. Obviously, the networks jumped in and demanded that they reveal it. Um, so that's kind of what happened, and that's what we ended up with. Yeah, there's, there's these really interesting stories about the filming of those, of those scenes and kind of the, the lead-up to it. The there's a, a story that I heard about Ray Wise, the actor for Leland, mm, um, yeah. Richard Bamer, the the actor for Ben Horn, and um, Russ Hamblin, the actor for Dr. Jacoby. Um, they were all brought into a room, told basically that the killer is one of you guys, mm. and they didn't reveal who it was right away. Which they were like, oh shit, okay. Um, <laughs> Miguel Ferrer the actor for, Ro- for Albert yeah. we talk about. he told a story later on that um, in preparation for filming that scene everyone was kind of given scripts and they were sort of said you know this is kind of how things are going to play out you know all these scripts are kind of like tightly under wraps you know they're all numbered so that if any of this shit gets leaked we know who did it and we need these scripts back when you've yeah. when you finish learning your lines basically they got to set on the day that they were going to be filming that and then they sort of said, okay, here's the real script. <laughs> and apparently the script that they were given was all 
was all some nonsense that uh, just to sort of throw people off the scent and try and keep the, the secret as closely guarded as they could until the very, very last second. That's great. Apparently they did film a, a version of the scene where Ben was the killer. Ooh. And I don't know if that was um, is, as an insurance policy in case yeah. um, you know the information got released and they needed to sort of switch, switch gears really quickly or to sort of throw people off the scent. But yeah, that footage has never been released anywhere. I don't know if it still exists, but that would be fascinating to see. I think that would be really interesting. Uh, one thing going back on how like the uh, Never Reveal Laura's killer, I, one moment that really struck out for me in watching was the funeral of Laura and how Bobby mm. goes, we all killed her. And I figured like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the answer. We all killed her. I mean, why you yeah. didn't need anything else. It's just Bobby blatantly telling everyone want to know who killed her we all did like yeah that's the answer that is a great scene and um i think you're absolutely right i think that the sorry i'm just waiting for a motorbike to go past it's james run (laughs) 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 no (laughs) um yeah, the yeah the funeral scene is a is a good one, and I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, his little speech does show that Laura was troubled. She was calling out for help, and nobody was you know everyone was sort of focused on either their own shit or focused on um, you know oh Laura isn't she so good? She does all this stuff, and you know they ignored her calls for help, which is you know a sad and tragic reality of what often what happens with victims of abuse. Right. Yeah, it was a really powerful scene, that one. The scene where Leland is revealed as the killer. I mean, you, you kind of had a hunch that Leland was the killer all along, which um, which was interesting. And, and um, But but how was your response when that was kind of confirmed? Like, what, How did you kind of feel about that? I could feel how it clumsily got to that point because I could feel like the mystery in the beginning of it and then how it... it the mystery... Of like the killing of like the killing girls and like the letters under the nails and how like that doesn't really you have to stretch to make it go back to Leland and stuff like that. And it was like mm-hmm. there's one of these things where I felt like, oh, I'm I got it. But then seeing how it played out, I'm like, oh, yeah, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. And I did like the scene of like Cooper getting everyone in the roadhouse and like one of you is the mm. killer and stuff like that. But it was a well shot scene. Like they did their best, but at the end it was just it was such a leap of logic even for this that it was still semi disappointing to see it just be fully okay, this is the answer. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting take. I mean I guess um I mean I I've always found it to be quite a, a powerful scene. But I mean, I guess that's because I didn't. I was watching in a chronological order, like uh, like a regular person. <laughs> I know, but I mean, it's a weird concept for you. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of getting to that point um, and just sort of seeing all the pieces slot together, I, I always found it was really kind of satisfying. Let's talk about the character of Josie. She had a really interesting death. <laughs> talk, talk us talk us through what was going through your mind because this is kind of late in season two when they're yeah. sort of. I guess in the doldrums of uh, of, of you know good plot lines, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. What What was your response to this? <laughs> okay, so immediately watching through this, I was making note of each character who was in the return. I'm like, okay, am I going to see them die or is it going to be left open? And Josie was one I was very interested in to see what happened. Mm-hmm. And I found it very interesting, all these like webs she's in, all this like, you know, of like sex, lies, murder and all that. And like, okay, what's her fate going to be? And all that and as mm-hmm. they introduce more and more how her her affair with the sheriff but her businessing her business and murdering her former husband and stuff like that and then i was so certain the second we saw her it was going to be truman cooper both pointing a gun at her as she's pointing a gun I'm like all right well it has to be harry who shoots her and that's going to be his tragic mo- right. story moving on and stuff like that yeah <laughs> And I was so I was ready for I was just seeing their tensions like, come on, Harry, I know this is going to be hard, but you got to do it. She's going to kill either you or Cooper. So you got to do it. And then once she fainted, I'm like, huh? Then I saw Bob. I'm like, OK, what's happening? And so when Harry checks her pulse, I'm like, OK, she maybe she's in the red room. And then we'll see her in the finale. Then once the camera pans over to the cabinet drawer and you see her face in the knob and just this 3d (laughs) image of her pushing against it craig (laughs) you could ask me what's a very unique way to kill someone off in the show i could have just oh just put them in the red room do dumb shit like that like no just trap their soul inside the knob of a drawer in the great northern <laughs> i could have never guessed that and i think it's one of the most unique ways i've ever seen someone get killed off on a show and i love it yeah i mean yeah it's, oh, it's so funny we, we've got different views on that i think because um that that was not a lynch directed episode i don't think and i feel oh, like really i feel like it was kind of Obviously, Twin Peaks is more than David Lynch. There's a whole there's a whole network of writers and directors who are crafting this story. And from what I've heard, Lynch was kind of checked out of a lot of it. And, um, you know, people would kind of come to him with ideas and he'd be sort of like, yep, yeah, okay, sure, that's fine. And, you know, just let them sort of have free reign with it. I feel like, I mean, my interpretation of that scene and, you know, from every time I've watched it, what has been sort of like, the writers and directors are kind of like scrambling, you know, the each episode is kind of getting lower and lower ratings. We're getting closer to potentially being canceled. My interpretation of that scene was that the writers and the directors came up with, okay, let's think of the most out there, wacky David Lynch esque shit we can think of. And we'll just do that. And they just came up with the idea of putting her on a doorknob. Um, even the fact that like Bob shows up and the, and the man from the other place shows up and, you know, you know, dances on the bed for a second. Like that just seems like, okay, let's just throw this stuff in there to sort of vaguely tie it back to some of this other stuff that's been established and where we'll come up again. But nah, it always just struck me as really weak and it just kind of like, ugh, it was a bit of an eye roll to be honest. (laughs) Uh, now I'm going to rewatch The Return and see if there's any joke about a knob acting up at the Great Northern and stuff like that. Well, I was going to bring that up. There is a scene, well, there's, there's a couple of scenes in The Great Northern. Do you recall there's a scene with Ben and Beverly where they're in one of the offices and there's that weird kind of humming noise? Yeah, you're right. 
you know, trying to find him. It seems to be moving around the room, and it seems to be kind of trapped in the walls. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of some interpretation that potentially that humming noise is Josie's spirit, maybe? I could believe it, Which yeah. is interesting. And she's kind of trapped inside the, the wood... <laughs> Like she's traveling through the woods in the in the Great Northern or something like that. Oh my god, what if what if like the only one who could hear her is like Log Lady, but she doesn't give a shit about Josie. She's like, ah, leave her in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Josie sucks. Before we get into a discussion of the final episode, um, what do you think the dumbest season two subplot is? Oh, and there's a few contenders here. Shit. Some of the main ones that people bring up are you know the whole arc with James leaving town and visiting Evelyn. And that whole bullshit. There's the whole bit about Nadine gaining super strength and um, going back into high school. Um, there's the nonsense, or the it's not really nonsense, just boring sort of subplot around um, Norma's mother being a food critic and coming to town oh, and giving the Lara bad review. Um, there's Audrey and Billy Zane stuff going on. <laughs> Andy and Dick adopting a, a child who might be the Antichrist. I had fun with that one. I'm not choosing that one. With that the one. Dumbest. Hey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, after Laura's Killer was revealed, it was a sense that they were kind of scrambling to sort of fill episode space, and there were all these weird little side plots going on, and none of them, a lot of them, were not particularly interesting. What, what do you think was the lamest one? Catherine being an Asian man. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, we've got a uh, I've got a whole section on uh, on problematic shit, <laughs> so, so we can talk about that there. I, I never did like the James and Evelyn. Oh, it was so bad. That was that's definitely down there with me too. Here's the thing with Nadine, I hate how good she is at acting at it because she was great. She's giving a hundred percent her energy, her her just mannerisms and everything. She's so good in it. So she's she's using her superhuman strength to live the lift this turd of a storyline. Yeah, which is so Absolutely. funny because they justify her having so much strength. Oh, she's just got a bunch of adrenaline going through her. What? Yeah. No, that's not what. There's a scene early on. I think it's her first scene where she's where Ed comes in. And he's he spills grease all over the floor or whatever, and he's um, and she's on her rowing machine. Yeah. And she's sort of like bends the thing back and like it, it kind of felt like when they were developing that plot they were kind of looking at that early episode and think oh actually yeah nadine's established as being really strong let's pick that up and run with it let's put her on the wrestling team <laughs> yeah wouldn't and wouldn't it be funny if she was in a delusional state where she you know, had to go back into high school yeah yeah now that never sat well with me no just going back to james and evelyn really quickly oh. um I haven't watched the second season as much as I've watched other stuff, but there's a definite point where it's one of the later entries or mid mid season two entries where the episode opens where James is on his motorbike and he's driving down the road. And every time I see that scene, I'm just like, oh, like I just, I just get despondent because it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is, that's kind of the turning point for me where I'm just like, oh, yeah. This, this is just going to be rough from, from now on, for the most part. It's so bad that he just leaves the show. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, let's talk about the final episode. Because it's, you know, we've talked a bit, a bit about, you know, how it's a rough ride until the end, but that last episode kind of makes up for it. Is, is that your perception of it as well? What did you think of the last episode? 
I think it was brilliant. I, I, I'd messaged you like a couple of minutes in and I felt David Lynch because I obviously I knew it was him and I saw him directed by David Lynch. But like, God, just the essence, the shots, the performances like, mm. no, this this is Twin Peaks running on all cylinders. And this is what a finale should be. Mm. What I love about the episode is that, you know, obviously we spend the bulk of it in this kind of surreal red room all this kind of weird stuff is happening that's kind of the bulk of the episode but i love how quickly we kind of establish that <laughs> and i think one of one of my favorite scenes from it is the scene just speaking about nadine again the scene where nadine basically comes to the realization that she's 35 years old yeah. and i just love how quickly and efficiently lynch just in one short scene dispatches that whole entire mm-hmm. plot <laughs> He's just kind of like, nope. <laughs> she's waking up. She's woken up. She's she realizes who she is. She doesn't recognize this teenage boy. <laughs> Hit that shit with a sandbag and kill it. And I just love how efficiently he kind of just gets that nonsense out of the way. <laughs> it's, it's great. Here's what I love because that scene is so fast versus the scene in the bank where the man is slowly getting Osri water. <laughs> It's like, this is brilliant because, yes, give me more of this shit, less of that shit. I love you, David Lynch. Yeah, that bank scene is is so good. I don't know, there's something about the way that David Lynch choreographs an old man, you know, slowly wandering from one end of the room to the other to pass somebody a beverage. It's so funny. Then does it again, looking for the safety deposit box, like, ugh, ugh. Looking at yeah. the key, looking at the boxes, slowly guiding them. I'm like, oh, he does it twice, and it's so good. And then that scene ends with just this amazing, like, just this extreme explosion. And, and the glasses, yeah, glasses of the guy. Flying through the air. It's so, just, mm. it's so good. Yeah. Cinema. Yeah, it is. It's perfect. And obviously, we do spend a lot of time in the Red Room. Um, what do you see as, I guess, the function of the Red Room? I see it as the gateway between two worlds where Bob mm-hmm. is clearly, he's not a person, he's just a presence. And maybe it's mm-hmm. the way that Judy also gets things to the human world as well. Maybe mm-hmm. that's how she functions and how she does her dealings. Because it feels, watching everything TV series-wise, it feels like Bob was made to be this threat. But in the return, he's revealed to be just a mini-boss. And Judy is the one who's actually the boss of all this. So... It was meant mm. to keep your eye, not at Judy, but at him to f- build this man up, to build him up and build up Mr. C as in, no, that's the real final boss. And then at the end of the return, it's like, no, Judy was the final boss. You just weren't paying attention. And then bam, you lost. Mm. Yeah, I think there's some, there's definitely some credence to that. I mean, there's, there's talk, especially towards the end of the second season where there's a lot of discussion around the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. You know, the Black Lodge being a, you know, an, an, e- an evil space and the White Lodge being a space of love and, um, you know, compassion and stuff like that. I think the man from another place does sort of specifically say this is the waiting room, mm-hmm. referring yeah. to the Red Room. So I feel like that is kind of like the, the junction between our reality or, you know, the, the reality of the show and... Um, you know these extra dimensional spaces of the white lodge and the black lodge and i don't know if we've ever seen the black lodge or the white lodge themselves within the context of the show there's some speculation that potentially the place and the return where the the fireman is Mm -hmm. is based that sort of black and white theater kind of space that is that the white lodge 
maybe yeah. who knows but yeah i think i think that the red room definitely does sort of function as that kind of um that sort of junction point between the two so let's let's talk about bob then a little bit more um it's established in the show and curious to see whether you picked up on this that bob is or bob and mike i guess uh they're referred to as inhabiting spirits yeah so the idea being that they used to be partners and they used to work together to to basically to kill people and to be like chaotic forces in the context of the show mike um denounced that um and removed his arm as a result because his arm had a tattoo on it that um you know tied them to to this evil lifestyle but basically that bob you know bob sort of went rogue and um you know is a demonic force which will then in, um, inhabit people knowing what we know about bob and about leland's activities i wanted to ask you Vinny, to what extent is bob responsible for leland's activities and to what extent is leland responsible the way i looked at bob is like he is just an enhancement of evil he enhances mm-hmm. what's already there so i can right. i think that leland downright is deep to his core is probably just an angry man with who he associates with ben and jerry just they all vibe mm-hmm. together we're all pieces of shit so i think just bob just enhances everything whether it's if leland wanted to kill uh, laura it's not really not really said like there was a pre-existing like urge to kill like because to everyone she was perfect to sarah she mm. was definitely perfect to leland it feels like he painted her as perfect but maybe there was some resentment that she didn't do something that he wanted and just bob enhanced that notion or just enhanced that hate that's just resonating right. inside him so bob's kind of like an amplifying presence that yeah. um, brings out the worst sides of people right that's really astute i mean that that read definitely does tie into sort of what we see in the return because we know that um you know we know that mr c is kind of operating in the world and that he does have bob as a presence inside him yeah but they are sort of distinct separate entities let's talk about doppelgangers we see in the in that last episode that a few characters have seem to have these these doppelgangers um obviously cooper has one chases him through the last part of that episode um and the implication i think is that the doppelganger is what escaped yeah. from the red room and ended up in the in the hotel and then went on to become mr c for 25 years while cooper was trapped um, but we also see the likes of laura has a doppelganger uh, leland has a doppelganger um, the man from another place has a doppelganger and actually says doppelganger. Yeah, <laughs> so, it that. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what, what do you sort of make of all of that? Do you know much about the concept of a doppelganger? Doppelganger is like a copy, but there's something off about it or something. That's always what I understood from like the use of the word. It's a copy, but there's something just off where it's not like an exact replica. Is how I've always mm. seen the word. Yeah. The word itself is a German word and it kind of means, I think it means like double walker. Definition of it is kind of vague, but it, and it's being used in literature to refer to people that, you know, see themselves or, you know, see a version of themselves or, you know, see a person that looks exactly like them. It's interesting to think about whether these entities kind of exist or if they are created in the red room and you know people that uh that go to the red room have a doppelganger created or are there other 
factors that go into the the generation of a, of a doppelganger. And I don't have a clear answer on that, but it's it's interesting to kind of think about. Right. I mean, we see other people in the Red Room. We see, you know, Wyndham Earl goes into the Red Room. Obviously, he takes Annie in with him. Right. But we don't see their doppelgangers. Well, maybe we see Annie, so I can't remember. Well, the only thing with Annie is she keeps switching back and forth between herself and Caroline. Did you make anything of that? I mean, do you, do you understand what was happening with, well, who, with who Caroline is and what was happening there? Yeah, it was Wyndham Earls and just... I took that as like the red room enhancing enhancing that that bitterness between Wyndham mm. Earl and Cooper, just reminding them why they're in the state that they are. Just the failings of Cooper taking care of Wyndham Earl's wife and just enhancing it, it was a Bob mm. trick because then you see Bob having such a strong grasp on Wyndham Earl and stuff like that, where it's just mm. this evil is being multiplied in that instance of just reminding Coop how He's not the best. He failed yeah. someone he's supposed to protect. He failed the woman he loved in that in that same altercation. So it's it's just a reminder of the hate that is brought on by Cooper. Mm. Yeah, Windermill's an interesting guy. Because he, he, I mean, he definitely wants to harness the power of the Black Lodge. He wants to, you know, he wants to sort of use that somehow. So I, I, I always thought it was an interesting scene where makes he tries to make that ultimatum with Cooper. He sort of said, you know, I'll let Annie live if you give me your soul kind of thing. And Cooper just kind of says yes without hesitating, which was which was kind of cool. But then that's the point where sort of Bob comes in. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't get to make that call. You know, you don't get to have that power, which I think speaks to Windermill's hu- hubris that he can, you know, he, kind of thinks of it because he understands some of the stuff that he can make those kind of offers or make those kind of things and ultimately pays the price for it right um anything else you want to kind of say about this about this final episode uh i love how the second i'll just call him mr c because that's who escapes but he doesn't really try to act like cooper immediately Mm. he doesn't he just speaks so robotically i need to brush my teeth and the only time he tries to act is like, how's Annie? Then that's ultimately his final line, just looking over, evilly laughing, how's Annie? How's Annie? As he bashes his head on the mirror. I'm like, he didn't even try to fake it, really, to pretend like he was Cooper. Yeah. What did you think of that final that final kind of moment? Like, what was your response? What was your reaction to that? Like, I figured I could tell what the last, like, frame of it was going to be. Like, the reveal, oh, it was the doppelganger all along. But, like... I just like the like the tension of it just growing, just how maniacally laughing with the house Annie and the bashing of the head and the blood. I'm like, okay, this is good at creating the tension because clearly, like, if you're a first time watcher, this is a big reveal. Where for me, I'm like, I know where the narrative goes. So yeah, I know Mr. C is out and about, but like, just building up and building up to him, like, oh, that's that's a great final shot of yeah. it. Yeah, this this was the final kind of moment for the show. Um, it didn't get picked up after this. So fans of the show at the time were, you know, this was kind of what they were left with until Firewalk for Me came out. And as a film that wasn't, that didn't sort of, didn't so much expand on what happened after that, <laughs> you can kind of see how that would be frustrating. <laughs> Before we get to Final Walk With Me, though, I just want to briefly touch on some, some, of, the, uh, some of the more problematic shit from <laughs> particularly the second season. Um, so there's a bunch of things that kind of 
happen here. Obviously, you spoke to it before. There's a an extended um, subplot with uh, an Asian character, Mr. Tojimura, who we find out is um, played by Piper Laurie, a, a very non-Asian woman. <laughs> was it a surprise when that was kind of revealed that uh, that it was Catherine in disguise? It was and wasn't because, like, the season one finale was so great. All these, like, open plot threads, like, oh, the Catherine and Shelley get out, or what happens with Leo and stuff like that. And then once it comes back, it's like, it they just go, oh, Catherine's dead. It's like, is there a body? No. It's like, that's that's a huge loose thread. So I'm like, Catherine's showing up. Yeah, we know enough about soap, soap opera narratives that, you know a character is dead but there's no body then 100% that character's alive and also like Shelly is out so it's like well they both ran out together and it's like duh like of course she's alive because she had Shelly in hand mm. as they were leaving the fire right it was just just the scene of introducing this businessman just Ben chilling out in the lounge of the Great Northern being told about the critic coming and then just locking eyes with this person who is 100% not Asian, but just as an Asian man. <laughs> Him just nodding. And just... <laughs> oh, it's just the, the the mustache, the makeup, the look in the eyes. I'm like, oh my god, this is... Ooh, that. I knew the second I saw him, like, that is not an Asian person in there. Did you... How long did it take before you realized it was Catherine? Was it... Did, did you recognize her before the big reveal? N- no, it took the reveal scene because right. okay. it it was like who that why would they do it because I was more worried that it it the intention was this is an Asian person but we couldn't get an Asian actor oh. so just put someone in there and just <laughs> let's pretend I was more worried about that yeah, right. I'm like oh thank God it wasn't supposed to be an Asian person oh behind the scenes that was an interesting thing because um, nobody on the set apart from Piper Laurie who played the character kind of knew that uh, Catherine would be revealed in this way. So she had to come in, you know, several hours before everybody else on set and, um, you know, get made up like that and was introduced to the cast and crew as some Asian actor. And she sort of spent her time, you know, pretty distant from from the rest of the cast. And there's, there's stories from the cast where they're sort of saying, oh, the new guy's a bit weird. Like... <laughs> Piper Laurie, who plays Catherine, she sort of she told a story once about how um, Richard Bamer was kind of su- trying to suss it out. She was kind of, he was kind of scrutinizing her, and like you know she could see him from across the room, sort of going, nah, something's up here, something something fishy going on." But apparently, he didn't know until the scene where she reveals herself, and his reaction there was kind of a genuine one. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. Yeah, so that was definitely sort of problematic in terms of uh, representation and stuff. <laughs> what about um, what about Ben's Civil War reenactment? <laughs> how did you feel about that? Like, he takes for granted how much Jerry and Audrey love him. Because they were all on board with putting on costumes and having a full reenactment in his office. And yeah. it was this interesting thing where I was slowly understanding what was happening because it was him and and Doc who were negotiating the terms of the surrender. I'm like, wait, it, it, they going? chose words very carefully because he was saying how his side's generals are allowed to go back to their homes and like 
come on say what else is in that treaty and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, that's why you stop right there? Okay, let's just forget about the entire reason the South was fighting for. Mm. And I, I have to admit, there is a degree of ignorance on my part being, a, you know, not from America and we didn't, didn't learn about the Civil War and all this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down there. <laughs> um and it is it is jarring watching this scene, watching these scenes in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two, and seeing you know Ben waving a huge Confederate flag, yeah. and you know what the sort of the context of that these days means. And uh, yeah, this is weird. Yeah. As hundreds more of Confederate statues still up, that would be weird, right? In this day and age, that would be weird. It would, yeah. That'd be that'd be that would be unusual. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't think that uh, it would, you know, it would be a cause for celebration, but you know, or you know, veneration, I guess. But anyway, um, there's other there's, there's other kind of, I guess, problematic shit. But I guess it's kind of on a more thematic level. Obviously, there's themes of sexual abuse. There's themes of um, incest, I guess. Uh, there's themes of underage sex trafficking and and all of that kind of stuff, which. I mean, how do you feel that the treatment of those subject, those really serious subjects, how do you feel that that stuff was treated in the show, given that it was on network TV in the early 90s? I feel like they honestly tried their best they could, given how limited restrictions I can imagine there were and stuff like mm. that. Just more problematic stuff from where it's like, this is the very much of its time of like hawk misgendering denise and just how many jokes there are of yeah. that it's like i understand it's a product of its time but i still can't help but just bleh, at it i was gonna i was gonna bring that up um what i mean how do you feel that the representation of denise as a as a transgender character was this is a time when um you know i'm happy to be corrected on this but i feel like there weren't that many this might have been one of the first representations of a transgender character on you know mainstream TV, which wasn't a dude cross-dressing to get in the girls' locker room yeah. or you know played for comedy or, or anything like that. Um, which I know there's there's absolutely a distinction between transgender and, um, and cross-dressing, obviously. I mean, we're still a few for, at the time of this airing. We're still a few, just not even like a full decade away from Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks. <laughs> And yeah, stuff like absolutely. that and i think it was a smart it because they did start off almost as a joke where denise discovered this while undercover like they start off with that mm. that was the basis of it it was an undercover it was blatantly someone who identified as a man first putting on a dress and makeup and then mm. they wanted to tell the story about how Denise was born out of this where denise was discovered out of this where the true denise was found mm. stuff like that where I do, it's always going to be a problem with like a, a cis man is playing this character and stuff like that. But mm. I think David Duchovny gives it, gives it justice in his performance where mm -hmm. he just playing the character with such honesty and just how forward they are with it and how yeah. th this is something beautiful, something that they are going through in life and how they're excited for the outcome mm. of the other end of the transition and stuff like that. I think it should yeah. be commended, but also, yes, it's of its time. But I think they probably did the best that they could. Yeah, obviously, as as two straight cisgender 
men. Um, we're obviously not qualified to speak to the to the transgender experience um, directly, but I mean, I feel like coming at it from looking at it from that outsider lens, I feel like they do treat the character of Denise with respect, and that some of the reactions that some of the some of the other characters have are probably indicative of, I guess the 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 knowledge gaps or shortcomings, I guess, of people at that time. Um, so I feel like that's probably an indication of that. And ultimately, Denise saves Cooper from Renault and being killed. Like that's mm. cool. Like I really like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. If anything, I wanted more of her in the return because it was just the opening scene about Gordon getting the case that there's a Cooper looking around. Let's go find him. Yeah, and kind of, you know, taking the opportunity and the return to sort of be like a bit self-congratulatory about, hey, look how woke we are, mm-hmm. you know. I... Even though Gordon, Gordon dead names Denise to their face, even though it's still weird. I knew when you were Dennis, I'm like, oh, God, you just dead named yeah. this person straight to their face. Yeah, like, you know, 25 years after after they uh, started on their, on their path. Let's, um, let's start wrapping this up. Any, any other kind of final thoughts before we get to our last little piece here, any final thoughts about um, about the original series that you have, Vinny? Just a few like standout moments, like Invitation to Love is great. It's so <laughs> yes. good. And then I realize mm-hmm. it's not there in season two. It's gone. No, no, they just sort of abandoned that, um, which is which was a shame. Which is like this is when you sh- when you had shit storylines. This is when you should have been leaning more into Invitation to Love. I always did like Invitation to Love because it was you know it was kind of echoing in a melodramatic way what was kind of happening in the in the mainline show. And I think that in 2017 it would have been great to have you know even just a passing reference to oh shit they're rebooting Invitation to Love or you know something like that I think that would have been really fun I could have seen Janie Hayde watching it like oh I used to love this show as a kid let's watch it now this is shit this isn't what I wanted just have Janie just yelling almost being like a critic of like the return like damn you Sapphire and Jade (laughs) (laughs) damn you David Finch (laughs) yeah any other kind of random thoughts or standout moments uh oh my favorite shot, uh, probably out of this entire show, was when that bird who was a witness got murdered, and you see the blood of the bird fall on the donuts. I, ah, oh, holy fuck. I had to double check that wasn't a David Lynch episode. It was, I'm like, oh, but it feels like something he would have done. Just how sad. Just the bird, bird assassinated. The bird talking yeah. and just, and just the swinging of the cage and the blood just pouring on the donuts. Like, God, that is... Oh, one of the best yeah, shots I've ever seen. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's beautiful. I think the the scene just before that was um, Leo was preparing to shoot Bobby. I think because he was spying on him and Shelley. Yeah, and then and then he sort of hears on the police scanner that um, that you know Waldo the the bird is starting to talk and he's just like, oh shit, actually this bird could implicate me. Um, I'm gonna take care of this. <laughs> I'm gonna go assassinate this, <laughs> bird. this house bird. <laughs> yeah that's that's great but also just overall thoughts like there is way less red room in this original series than there are in the return Mm. like i never would have thought that and i think it's great like it just adds to the mystery of the place it just makes it so much more special because like you could argue there's maybe too much of it in the return but for me it was just more of the weirdness and i loved it but like yeah there wasn't Mm. really there 
in not, it was barely in the first season and just a little bit more in the second season but i think they used it so good yeah i mean the, the first couple of seasons are a lot more sort of grounded in what we might perceive as kind of reality you know where the story is basically fo- you know it is focused on the people of the town and um and that kind of and you know cooper obviously investigating i mean we see the red room obviously in cooper's dream but that's you know a dream um but i mean a lot of the super, more supernatural stuff doesn't kind of get developed until later on in that season there's a few bits about bob and that kind of stuff earlier on and there is that question about whether bob is an actual entity or if it was kind of a a split personality of leland that or if bob is kind of a representation of you know the evil that men do i think is the line um but we don't start we don't start getting a sense of the more of that law heavy stuff around the red room and the lodges and um you know all of that kind of stuff until around the time of the killer reveal and later and then it sort of slowly builds towards that last episode i just wanted to finish off by um talking a little bit about and getting some thoughts from you Vinny, about uh the last big piece of the puzzle fire walk with me the feature film that came out in 1992 so it came out after the series um it was touted as a prequel film so the last seven days of laura palmer but it also does spend a bit of time bridging that gap between the seasons and um, exploring some of the more lore-heavy stuff. So having not seen the film, Vinny, I wanted to ask you a few questions and have you speculate on what we might see there. All right, cool. I want, I want you to give me a sort of a percentage. What percentage of the film do you think will be focused on the story of Laura's last seven days? Ooh, uh, I'm going to say 30%. 30%, that's quite low. Okay. Because I think it'll Seems be told low. narratively, yeah. but not in the way I think, so that's why I have it low. Right, okay. All right. All right, then. So if 30% of the film is, is focused on Laura and her story, um, how much coop are we going to see? Uh, is it going to be, like, a lot? Is it going to be a small amount? Is he going to show up at all? I'll say What's, 50%. 50% Cooper? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, um, you know, just, just keeping in mind that, um, you know, they never met in life. Yeah. Will we see characters that we saw in The Return, but we didn't see in the original series? Ooh. Hmm. Let me see. Who would be in The Return? Hmm. Who would... It... Hmm. Oh, wait, no. We'll see Philip Jeffries. We will see Philip Jeffries. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely see that. Other than that, I can't think of anyone else who might be in the return, but I'm ready to be surprised. But yeah, I think there's a strong notion now that you're saying that. Yeah. Um, And the final question, there's a concept that's introduced in Fire Walk With Me. I don't think this is a real word (laughs) or a real concept. I think it was made for the show and they do give a definition in the the movie. Uh, But I want you to tell me what it is. What is Garmon Bosia? Garmin Bosia? Garmin Bosia. May I hear it in a sentence or is that. <laughs> yes, you may. Um, Garmin Bosia is a concept that was introduced in the feature film Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me. Thank you, Craig. Okay. Com- country of origin, USA. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Garmin Bosia. I can. 
I can I, okay. I can I can make this a little bit easier. Um, there's a character who says, "Bob, I want all my Garmin Bosia." Hmm. Okay. Bob, I want all my Garmin Bosia. Garmin Bosia is a substance that lets you or maybe it's a form of drug hmm mm-hmm. it's a substance mm-hmm. or drug a substance or a drug okay interesting yeah you'll have to you'll just have to watch the movie to find out <laughs> and uh are you excited to watch firewalk with me i am i'm very excited because it's the last thing and It'll, it'll be so poetic. It'll be the last thing for me because that was the last thing for a lot of people until the return. So it's like mm. I, I'm enjoying to see how it's going to be, how it's going to feel as my last thing ever because I've seen everything right. else. So it's like, oh, what's this last thing going to be for me? What's the lasting impression that this entire narrative is going to leave on me? It'll be interesting to see whether, whether this final piece of the puzzle does kind of connect a few dots for you because... Um, Firewalk with me is fundamental to understanding a lot of the stuff that happened in the return. Um, not that it, that's an easy thing to do, <laughs> potentially even a possible thing to do. <laughs> and here's something I forgot to bring up that I freaked out about in season one, when Cooper examining Laura's body, there's a buzzing and a flickering of a light. Mm-hmm. I'm like that. Yep. That that felt so appropriate. That. That's so cool if he planted that seed of the buzzing and the flickering in that moment. It was just like the aide in the hospital, like, oh, sorry, that light's out. But like, no, that's that, that's the thing. That's the connecting thing between everything right now. That's so cool. Well, let me, um, let me blow your mind a little bit further. That was um, not planned. That was a real thing that was happening in that room. If I'm remembering this right, the aide or whoever it was who, who mentions the light, he sort of has a bit of an awkward interaction with Cooper where he sort of um, he sort of mentions that the lights are out and Cooper's like, oh, okay, yeah, thanks. And then he kind of, yeah, he kind of like stands around nervously yeah. and um, I think McLaughlin didn't know what to do in that moment. So he sort of like was like, uh, can you can you leave us, please? Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, yeah. And that was kind of a real <laughs> interaction <laughs> that happened. They just sort of used that take, yeah. That's but I think it was one of those things where something in the real environment on set was, you know, was happening and Lynch sort of saw it and thought, yes, this is, this just adds another layer to this, this whole thing. And, um, yeah, it just kind of became an iconic part of the, part of the show. So good. Oh, I love it. Oh God. Love it. It's good. It's good stuff. God. I love Twin Peaks, Craig. I love it. Well, you know, you're welcome. Um, I'm glad that I could introduce you to this thing. And I gotta say, like, I've been, you know, I, I joke about um, anime and all this kind of stuff, but I'm I'm working my way through the Evangelion show at the moment, and it's really cool. Like, I do, I am really digging it. You know, it's cool stuff. Um, I'm not gonna talk too much about it now because we've, my voice is getting sore. Um, but no, it's cool. I'm, I'm digging it. Aww. So thank you for introducing me to that. Shall we listen to some music, Vinny, as we often do? Let's let's do that. Have you got anything? Because I'm still um, thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
thinking about <laughs> I almost wanted to joke and then be like put you and I but fuck that song I don't get that <laughs> shit out of here I was sitting around like oh shit I, I probably need to come up with a song that for us to play at the end of this and I was thinking like what how about let's put <laughs> the actual version of, of fly me to the moon <laughs> that was in Evangelion in this <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> screw doing it for That'll the work. evangelion episode we'll maybe do but let's do it with the fly me to the moon cover that was the end credits because <laughs> i'm like the end credits okay. for twin peaks it's all right but i don't think it's appropriate thing to just put at the end of this so let's put yeah. the cover right. of fly me to the moon that was the end credits for evangelion <laughs> well with that in mind then um i am going to choose a a japanese song mm. and I'll have to think about this because <laughs> I don't have one in mind. Um, but I will find a song by a Japanese artist and I will put it in at the end of this episode. All right, let's leave it there. Um, let's fire walk with us <laughs> out of here and we'll uh, see you on the next step. Thanks for your time today, Vinny, and um, good talking to you as always. Love talking bullshit with you, Greg. Take care. See you all. Bye bye. Just you.